Hello, and welcome to our Secular Sponsor Speaker Series. Each week, we hear from an Overeaters Anonymous member who has obtained and maintained abstinence without God and has served as a sponsor to other members. The series also provides opportunities for secular OA members who don't have a sponsor or are interested in exposure to a variety of points of view to learn from the experiences of others. We encourage everyone to sponsor others up to the level of their own recovery or to use these tools with each other as peers. If you're willing to sponsor or to work as a peer, please post a message at oasecularforum at gmail.com. For additional information about abstinence without God, go to secularovereaters.org. And now, let's hear from this week's Secular OA sponsor. Hi, I'm Alan, a recovering food addict, grateful member of OA. Um, I've been in OA um, just over 31 years. Um, my top physical weight, which I think you can see in this photo, was about 335 pounds. So I'm keeping off about 150 pounds. Um, I wish I could tell you I have 31 years of back-to-back absence. I've had a few relapses in there. The most back-to-back I've had is about 14. I currently have a little under six. I've had three relapses. I've been absent about 25 out of 31 years in different breaks. Um, So um, today we're going to talk about um, some alternative ways or different ways to get support from each other, uh, sponsorship or variations on it, or some group process. So um, in a nutshell, what I've come to believe in my time in OA is that there's two things that help people be abstinent. One is actions, figuring out the actions that you do on a regular basis, whether it's daily, weekly, or periodically, but the actions that you take in some systematic way that support abstinence. The things you might guess like, you know, calling your food or going to meetings or, you know, there's a whole bunch of our tools and sometimes ones you develop like exercise or meditation or, you know, whatever, going to yoga class, whatever, whatever your set of actions are, you, you figure that out and it's an ongoing work in progress. And then the second piece is the support, and the support is using other human beings to do those actions. Because if we could do it on our own, we wouldn't need OA. We would just figure out what I need to do and blah, 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 and you'd be good. You'd like lose your weight or stop purging and you know go off and have a life. But we come here because we can't do it on our own. We don't have that ability to figure out what it is we need to do. So we're a support group or a community of people that help each other do something we can't do alone, which is abstain from compulsive overeating. So that being said, if half of it or one piece of it is actions, and the other piece is support, I'm sort of here to talk about a little bit about what are the supports, what are the ways to structure and have the supports. And so I'll talk a little bit about, you know, my own. Um, so we have this thing called sponsor, right, which is someone that helps you. But that can look so many different ways. I'll just tell you what it looks like for me. Um, I have a person I talk to who I don't even know if I call him a sponsor. I think we call each other OA buddies a little bit. But he's someone that we relate. We're sort of similar. We've been in OA a similar amount of time. We have some similarity in our backgrounds. We met at a retreat in New Jersey. I've only seen this person once in my life. But we we kind of fit in some way. So twice a week, we talk for 
45 to 60 minutes. You know, we talk like for an hour in the morning. I think we're both kind of making our breakfast and doing stuff. It's wonderful to have headsets, right? You can do kind of like easy multitasking. You have to kind of make your breakfast and empty the dishwasher anyway or whatever. And we sort of take turns. It's a little informal. And we have some nice social glue. How's your day going? What's going up? You know, we sort of chit-chat. But then we talk a little more focused on you know, what our issues are. This particular guy is struggling with some compulsive computer behaviors and he has some food stuff that he's at goal weight and abstinent, but still is a little abusive in some areas of certain foods don't serve him. And, you know, he, he's struggling to get his exercise patterns down. So we just sort of go through it. We talk about it. What is he trying? You know, I kind of give him my best experience, strength and hope. And then we switch the hat to me and my big thing now is I'm in a relationship of six years that's not looking so great. And we often talk about that. And, you know, um, so, so that's this one thing I could, you could call him a co-sponsor an OA buddy. It doesn't matter, but it's another human being. We talk consistently week after week. And in that process, a couple of things happen. We know more about each other. So there's more history and perspective and we build some comfort. We like each other. We trust each other, you know? And so that's like a really good thing. And it helps us both have better food behaviors, you know? Um, so that's one tool I have. Then I've got a, what I would call quote, a program sponsor. This is a guy, we can go one or two months with no contact, but then we'll get together for like two or three hours and take a walk and have a meal and kind of like deep talks, you know, and talk about steps, talk about core life issues. Um, he's someone I, I really respect. Um, he just has a lot of wisdom. He has what, what I want and need. So we have really good talks. Um, he's very different than me. He's a super religious Christian, like he's evangelical, right? Which is, I'm, a, I'm not religious. So you wouldn't think, but you know, and he's really respectful. He's like, you know, I won't say God, I'll just say wisdom for you. But for, in my world, it would be God, you know, and we can kind of translate in each other's languages. And, and it's amazing how well it works. You know, he's very different than me. He's African-American. He's younger than me. He's very Christian. You know, like I, you would think this is a person that really helps me. But I've been working with him for five years and he's just an anchor in helping my life work better, you know? So that's it. And then I've got what I would call sort of a food sponsor. And here's this guy who I, we, our whole relationship is on text. I mean, you know, I'll, if I'm at a restaurant and I'm sort of struggling what to do, I'll pull out my iPhone and like text him. Or if I, after the meal, I think, you know, I really didn't need to get the extra salad dressing. I'll just say lessons learned. Mark, next time I'm at restaurant X, I need to not get the salad dressing or extra salad dressing. You know, it's like it's like a little lot of little tweaking. But he's just like the support. He'll text back, sounds good, way to go. And you know, he almost always says sounds good, way to go. But that's okay. It gets me to have that accountability and stuff. And we've grown into become friends. He's a bicycling buddy. About once a month we do a three-hour bike ride together and you know, just grow social glue and we talk about other stuff and you know, he's just become a, a nice person. And uh, there's a lot to be said for just building, like I call it, social glue, connection, honesty, communication. Um, there's um, another little, and besides those three kind of sponsorish kind of models, uh, a guy in OA started a OA men's book club. And it's seven or eight of us. And once a month, we read a book and get together at somebody's house and discuss it and have a meal together. 
and it's been going on five years, you know, and now we all kind of know each other and any one of those people, sure, we can call and discuss. We don't read OA books. We read like novels and stuff, but we can not just discuss that. We can discuss other stuff, you know, and again, you just build because a lot of it is you just want comfort and safety of people you trust so that you can talk about life's challenges and not have to use food to manage life's challenges, which is what I do is, you know, food is comfort. So on that, this other group, we used to call it G4, was four guys. We um, we used to go to the same meeting and we sort of liked each other. We said, why don't we have coffee once a month? So the four of us once a month would have coffee for like a two hour coffee. And we would talk about stuff specifically not program. We would take turns having topics, whatever, current events, philosophy, relationships, but like not specifically OA stuff. Um, but what happened out of that is one of the guys has struggled with relapse. And when he was having the issue, we were like, so there for him because we had all this history, you know, and knowing each other. So you just start to build this, these connections and they can be quite helpful um, as times arise. Um, talk about briefly two other types of groups I've um, been involved with or created. One is um, a relapse prevention support group. And that's a group of people that you meet with regularly and you just look about, you, you share with each other any indicators that you think you're getting toward relapse. Like I always feel like, Way before you pick up the food, there's telltale signs, you know, like you're not weighing your food, going to less meetings, like all these possible things. We uh, have a process where we identify them in ourselves and then get support from the others and how to mitigate them before we pick up the food. And this one group I was in, we met for 15 years. Three of the people have 25 years of abstinence now, you know, and it was so helpful. And, and any one of them would tell you I was going off track and the group pulled me back to center. You know, it's very powerful. Um, and the last one I'll mention is this thing called a carefrontation. That's when one person puts out an SOS and says, I need some care. And you get together with a few people and support them. And those two things, carefrontation and relapse support group, if anyone's interested, email me. My email's in the chat because we actually have some formats and things that I could send out to you. But um, the one I'm going to talk about now is something I call a recovery circle and a recovery circle is a really simple idea. It's a number of people that get together, usually small, like three, four or five people. And they get together periodically. They can all decide. It could be once a week. It could be once a month. It could be whatever the group decides. And they have a set time when they meet. Now we would do it on zoom. Zoom makes life so much more convenient. And you agree, let's say it's an hour and four people. Everyone gets 15 minutes. So, you, you know, you divide it evenly, you have somewhere to track time. And during that time, you can do one of a couple things. You can just share what's on your mind, share what's on your program. I mean, the focus is recovery. You're not going to talk about the great baseball game you saw the other day, or hopefully not. But you just talk about, like, what's going on. And there's something very powerful about having compassionate listenership, you know, when people actively are just there for you. And that's what happens when you go to a meeting, right? You stand in front of 10 people and everyone looks at you and they're there for those three minutes or whatever it is. Well, it's the same thing, except it's 15 minutes, which is a much, you do a lot more in 15 minutes than in three. Um, so you can just use it for this, you know, what I'll call compassionate listenership. But the other way it can be used is to get feedback. So if you have your 15 minutes and you've gone for five or 10 minutes and you say, you know what, I'm going to stop now. 
because I want feedback, but it's your call. And you specify, you know what I like feedback on? What I'm doing at restaurants, I'm struggling at Chinese restaurants. It's driving me crazy. You know, I don't know what to do at Chinese restaurants. I would love what you other people can give me your wisdom and thoughts and experience on how to manage Chinese restaurants. I mean, it could be very concrete or it could be, you know, how to handle something much deeper, vacations. Um, so you give people permission. And when they give you the feedback, and, I, and I'm going to send you a link with the guidelines, but the basic thing was that people should give feedback that's honest, kind, non-judgmental, and the whole goal is support the other person's recovery. You know, draw upon the collective wisdom of that circle. And again, when you're in one of these circles, the more you meet, the more you know each other, you have insight into each other, you feel comfortable with each other, you build that you know, collective, collaborative community space. And, and in it, um, it becomes a process for support and recovery. So um, I've seen them about at my time. So what we're going to do is an exercise where um, I'm going to ask for two volunteers. We'll have 12 minutes. So we're going to have like four minutes each. Uh, I'll, I'll go first to model it. And I'll use my four minutes as I might in a little mini group. And then afterwards, we're going to use the breakout session and put you guys into little groups of three to do what's modeled in the modeling session. And then at the end, we'll talk a little bit about how if you want to form a group like that, how we can maybe help you facilitate that creation, uh, as well as some Q&A. So um, let's see. I guess the, the next thing I would do is to go to this modeling session, and I would ask, are there any volunteers uh what do we do the little okay so hi kathy and nicole nice to meet you so let me just explain i'm going to have three minutes of time which is much smaller than it would real be but it's more the example and then i'll use that in my example i'll purposely talk about something and, and open it up for feedback just whatever feedback you have just be kind and then we'll rotate to one of you two and again you could either just talk for three minutes or you could break it up to get feedback and break again. And then we'll do all that all. Then we'll all, each one of us, 20 of us here, we'll put in a little group of three and have that example. Um, so if you'll start, Jim, I'll start. So hi, I'm Alan of Food Act. Um, thank you, uh, Kathy and Nicole, for being in my recovery circle for today. Um, an issue I'm struggling with is coffee right now. Um, I drink too much coffee. And the negative side of it is I uh, sometimes don't sleep well, sometimes wake up, go to the bathroom. And my doctor tells me my blood pressure is a little bit high. And she thinks it's because I drink coffee. It's, it's caffeinated coffee. And I can drink three or four cups a day. They're each like 16 ounces. What is that? Like a half gallon, up to a half gallon of caffeinated coffee, kind of more than most people would say you should do. And I have... Um, try different things. What I'm fussing with now is uh, I really like it in the morning uh, and I am trying to keep my goals to get it down to two cups a day. If I got it down to two and then maybe no more than three decaf, that would feel real like real progress for me. So my current plan is I have one in the morning and make my second cup decaf uh, and then go back to calf um, and then um, and then try to, so I do three cups between 5 a.m. and 10 a.m., like through my morning routine. And then I try to do one after lunch and then one before dinner and try to stop that. If I have it after dinner, it works against me. So that's kind of my current thinking, and I welcome any feedback or support.
Thanks, Alan. I, I have read studies recently that say that um, caffeine should be stopped no later than two in the afternoon if you want to have a really good night's sleep because it takes such a long time for the caffeine to leave your system. Is it possible that you could do the your last cup of the day as a decaf if you want it later? Yeah. Yeah, and I didn't know that. That's good to know. No wonder I have trouble sleeping. <laughs> I, I used to be addicted to uh, um, Diet Cokes, Diet Pepsis, and the caffeine in them. And uh, it was quite a struggle to get off it. Uh, headaches were amazingly powerful when you're decompressing from caffeine. So I, I learned a lot about it then. Thanks, Kathy. So, you're welcome. Hope that helps. Recall the journey feedback? Um, well, I come from a, a little bit of a different perspective as um, I've recently, well, about six months ago, learned how to meditate. And in that, um, I'm also working like with my inner children and uh, finding out, having compassion for myself and finding out why I'm using that. Um, because if I'm using something that much, I'm using it for an emotional support rather than it as the substance that it is. And, um, you know, maybe if you can get into tune with why that you're re relying on that so much to take care of you and like where maybe you need to be taking care of yourself. Thanks, Nicole. Um, actually, we, we are, I guess we should switch to the other one. Huh? But... Uh, so, so in any case, um, so you see that, so that was like super short, right? Like three minutes, but now we'll, we'll rotate again. Who, who would like to go next, Kathy or Nicole? I'll go. Um, I more right now, um, my relationship with food is improving, but, um, I feel a lot of envy when you talk about these groups of people you have, because, um, as when I, since I've moved to Maine about 10 years ago, I have not had any of those intimate relationships where I could really trust people like I did in California. And um, I'm especially isolated because of COVID, but not so much different than I was previously because I just can't seem to make the connections anymore. And um, I wish I knew how to do that. I don't know if there's something that's flawed in my personality or I don't know. I, you know, I, I used to know how to connect when I was younger and I just don't know how to do it anymore. And uh, I really would like to have a few people that I really trusted and that could trust me and that I could have that kind of intimate relationships with again. And I welcome any feedback. Nicole, Nicole, first I just want to say I hear you and my heart goes out to you because I get how important connection are. And, and just as a side note, I, I lost both my parents as an infant, real, excuse me, a ch child was raised in a foster home and then lost that. So I, I can understand just what it means, that desire for connection. And I, and, I, and I do think even this thing we're talking about now, recovery circle, there's going to be a space after form ones that can be ongoing if people like. And I, and I really feel like if everyone just follows some guidelines of being kind to each other and giving each other turns and time, um, that's all it really takes. Nicole, I, I hear you too. It's, it's especially tough, I think, as we get older to to make good, close, trusting friends. Um, I, I don't know much about you, uh, so I don't know how outgoing you are. Um, if you have hobbies, of course, uh, almost all of this is a moot point right this very moment because 
we cannot safely socialize. But uh, no matter what you enjoy doing, you can find other people who enjoy doing that with you. And that will get you started on feeling out some different personalities to uh, help you find new friends in uh, in your new home. But Californians are much friendlier than most other places. So. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's that's how I do it. Um, I I um, I have hobbies, and I belong to groups that do those hobbies, and also volunteering, giving back to your community. You will meet wonderful people who feel the way that you do about giving back. And that's a great starting bond for new friendships. You just have to do it safely right now. That's Maybe right. have a little patience for a couple more months. So, Kathy, here's. I had uh, an. I've been in OA for a couple of years. Half the time I've been abstinent, and I've been abstinent again for about six weeks. Um, COVID really knocked me. Uh, off track, that's for sure. So isolating. and um, But I, the other day I had a socially distant and very cold on the back porch uh, lunch with some friends. And it was almost overwhelming to me that as soon as they left, I wanted to eat. And I hadn't had that strong a craving. I, I wasn't hungry. I was quite happy with their uh, with their um, presence and enjoying our conversation. But I kept thinking, I wish they'd leave because I want to binge. And I, I, I was successful at not doing it, but I was just surprised at how strong it was. So I'm wondering if, if you have techniques for those sharp... Um, immediate must binge cravings that come out of nowhere that um, I could have used besides white knuckling it. You know, um, I've not had a lot of those kind of cravings, but the two things that have helped me is sometimes when I feel hungry, sometimes I feel really hungry and I just, maybe that is a craving feeling really hungry. And I sort of tell myself that it's okay to have a hunger discomfort. Like, like I would rather be hungry than have a bad headache. I'd rather be hungry than have a sore neck or a sore back. Like, like life is physical discomfort, whether it's for medical reasons <laughs> or the desire for hunger. And I've realized that hunger in the scheme of pains is a smaller one. Like I sometimes get terrible headaches or like I want to cry. I'd much rather feel hungry. And that hunger passes, either it passes because a meal arises, or often it just passes before the next meal. So I was sort of, that's kind of what I've experienced. And my thought from listening to people is that, you know, like pick up the phone, you know, just pick up that phone and say, I feel like I want to eat, but I know that doesn't serve me. Even if it's a voicemail to someone or a text or an email, just reach out and honor the feeling, but share it. You know where they say that? a challenge yeah. shared, a challenge halved, you know, or something. Yeah, I certainly didn't share it at the moment. Uh, I did not reach out. That's very difficult. When I'm in the throes of something, it's very difficult for me to reach out right then. I'll talk to you about it tomorrow, but it's very hard for me to do that today. So, um, you know, that's that's a tough one for me. I think that would have that helped. I'm sorry, Nicole? I think, though, you did... 
do something, you, um, you know, acknowledge, you became aware of what you were feeling. And sometimes I have to remember that I am not my thoughts. And so it's like, oh, I'm thinking about food again. And just by giving voice to it, you know, like, oh, I want to binge again so that I'm not feeling that guilt of like, why am I, can't, why aren't I past this yet? And, <clears throat> you know, why do I still have these cravings? Um, but just to knowledge, you know, I, I want to binge again or whatever. And just you give that pause. You know, it's that pause and like, which you basically did in your way because white knuckling or whatever, but to accept the fact that, you know, life sometimes is suffering and sometimes we have thoughts we don't like because they cause us discomfort. And, um, you know, like you said, eventually they, they do pass. And that's, and, and this, this also has passed because it's now three minutes. <laughs> There's quite questions now. It'd be great. I have a question. Alan, how did you come up with the idea of a recovery circle or where did you find it? So I've been in a lot of these groups over the years and I just thought you could make it so simple, you know, like you just get a circle of people that you have a, a common desire, like recovery from food addiction, you just share the time and listen kindly or give feedback if they want it. And that it would just be a simple model to help people because I think that's that's the core of what you need. So um, it was just a wow. Why not put it out there with the OA world? Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, and Kathy, go ahead and ask your question. Alan, do you have an optimum number of people for this circle? Um, it seems it could get kind of unwieldy if it's too big, but uh, um, I'm just wondering, and how often you meet, what have you found to be um, the most helpful? Sure. Well, I put together a document that actually answers all those questions, and it's just stuck the link in the chat box. It just says doc.google with a bunch of funny letters and numbers. But in essence, I kind of think four is an optimal number, you know, um, like three is okay, and, and five I would kind of put at the limit. Once you get to like six, I was in groups of six, sevens, and eights, it's like it becomes like a lot of listening and, you know, and feedback coming from too many directions. But usually if Two or three heads are there, heads and hearts are there for the other, you know, um, so I think that's really good. Something like an hour, hour and a half is a time limit. And again, you don't want to get too long, but everyone gets 15 or 20 minutes. I think that's a good amount of time to really get some stuff out. And then um, either meeting uh, once a week or every other week, you know, depending on people's schedules or at least once a month. I would not do less than once a month, but maybe every two or three weeks. Um, and then a re the two key things I would say is really keep it focused on recovery and don't just make it like a coffee clutch of chit-chatting about what's going on in the news or weather or whatever. Like that, it, it kind of, you know, it, it's really not the same. And then to really give people permission to get feedback or just talk. And if they want feedback to really guide it, like I want feedback on this, not just whatever comes to mind. And then I like the term ecology of time. Like we only have so much time. It's the most limited thing in the world. So just to be thoughtful, if you're giving feedback, don't tell like a long story. Just say, okay, you know, I'm going to take a couple minutes, try to really be clean and concise. I think it just, everyone feels better if the time has a good ecology to it. I'm assuming you're doing all the meetings now via Zoom. Yeah. And Zoom makes it so cool, right? You can, you know, do it with people all over the world. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Thank you so much for your question. And Vinny is next. Oh, hi. Thank you, Alan. Um, I'm, I'm 
what popped into my mind, and uh, forgive me if this is bad, um, is what do you do if people, you know, with these little groups um, feel like I didn't get into the group I wanted or I feel excluded from your group if I asked to join? You know, it's like, um, yeah, <laughs> where do you go with that? Um, you know, that's a great question. So typically, like one person's the former of the group, like they think, oh, I want to do it. Um, and they sort of find the people that they feel will work well with them that kind of align. And then once a group's formed, it's usually kept confidential. So no one else but the members are even aware the group exists. And then if somebody leaves the group, what we've done is if anyone new is going to come in, everyone has to be unanimous about it. Like everyone has to feel good about that person. So it's just this like unanimous structure. So in theory, no one would ever knock on the door of the group and say, oh, I heard you have a group. Can I join? Because you wouldn't even know that group exists. Thank you. That's that's good. I'm glad to see you've thought about that. Yeah, because the last thing we want to do is feel rejected as food. Right. <laughs> You're like rejects because we can't eat right most of our lives. You know? We got time yeah. for another quick one. Yeah, I'm, I'm just interested, really, that um, when we share at an ordinary OA meeting, um, there's no crosstalk, and we're, we're discouraged from commenting on what people have shared and and certainly not giving advice. And um, I've, I've, I've been intrigued by this and why that is the way it happens in OA groups, but you're suggesting something different for these recovery circles. And um, it's just raised a question in my mind about why one method in one group and another method in another group. So that's a great question. So when you think about it, OA has two basic communication models. One is the meeting where there's no crosstalk. Everyone just shares. It's pure listenership. You know, maybe they share in the literature or whatever, but it's pure sharing. And then you've got this sponsor-sponsee model where one person is sort of the mentor that tells you what to do, work the steps, do this, do that. And it's got this sort of hierarchical thing. This is sort of almost a little bit in the middle. It's a circle, so we're all equal. But we do allow some support from each other. And we have the choice, right? So you can go and take your 10 minutes and say, no, I don't want any feedback. I don't want any crosstalk. I just needed to get this off my chest. Or you can say, you know, I would welcome. So you sort of have the choice yourself and it's sort of in the middle. So it's sort of a new idea, you know, for the OA world. Um, and, that, and that kind of comes from looking at the two models, the meetings with no crosstalk at all and the sponsors who sort of tell you what to do versus just collectively, collaboratively trying to help each other as best we can. Thank you for joining us today. To hear recordings of other speakers in this series, visit seculareovereaters.org. And while you are there, please consider making a donation to support our work.